Welcome to the first podcast of Grounded Curiosity in 2016. I'm extremely privileged today to be talking to Brigadier Mick Ryan. We're in the suburb of Campbell, and for those of you who don't know Canberra all that well, it's a suburb wedged between the Australian War Memorial and the Royal Military College of Duntroon, which is a great location to discuss junior commanders and their role in future warfare. For the listeners, in full disclosure up front, I was once a subby and surprisingly made it out the other end with Brigadier Ryan, and Brigadier Ryan was my commanding officer. So if there are lessons learnt today about subbies doing dumb things, these stories could very well be based on me and my mates. Brigadier Ryan has a vast experience in commanding junior officers as a subunit commander, as a commanding officer of the 1st Combat Engineer Regiment, including as the first commanding officer of Australian Conventional Forces in Afghanistan in 2006, and recently as commander of the 1st Brigade, and now in his new role in preparing junior commanders for future war in the training space. So good afternoon and welcome to Grounded Curiosity. G'day, Claire. To begin our discussion, could you provide the listeners with just a bit more background as related to junior commanders? Yeah, sure. So I graduated from the Royal Military College. I actually didn't start at the Royal Military College. I started at the uh, Australian Defence Force Academy. Um, As a civil engineer, I'd got a scholarship to go there. I failed everything, uh, literally failed every single subject in that year. Um, And and in what is one of the great hallmarks, I think, of our army, they gave me a second chance and said, well, why don't you come across to the 18-month commissioning course? I did that. I loved it. I was very fortunate to... um, be with a bunch of former serving soldiers, which was about a third of my class, and they, they matured me and kind of took me under their wing. And I graduated from there, um, went to an engineer squadron in Brisbane, uh, did uh, troop command there uh, with, with a mix of combat engineers and, and tradesmen. Uh, it was pretty challenging, and I, I can't say that I was uh, any great leader, frankly, but uh, I certainly learned a lot during that time. Um, As a captain, uh, we normally do a variety of different jobs, and the first one I did was as a second-in-command of an engineer squadron that was a reserve engineer squadron, because in those days, in the early 1990s, it was mandatory we all had to do a reserve posting. And that really taught me to, uh, one, do a lot with very few resources, but to understand the demands on our reserve soldiers and just how dedicated uh, uh, our reserve soldiers are because it's pretty difficult to have a a job in the civilian world and uh, do reserve soldiering as well. I uh, spent a year at language school, I did a couple of years in a joint appointment in Northern Australia. Uh, As a major, I was an operations officer then a uh, squadron commander in an engineer regiment, our first combat engineer regiment. And during that time, I was fortunate to be part of the move of the regiment from Sydney to Darwin, where the entire 1st Brigade was concentrated for the first time in the late 1990s. I uh, was lucky enough to be able to go with that squadron to East Timor in 2000 as part of the 6th Battalion Royal Australian Regiment uh, Battalion Group, which was an amazing experience. It uh, opened my eyes uh, to uh, a fairly significant operational experience for our army, uh, the most significant one we'd had really since Vietnam. It opened my eyes to the realities of combined arms uh, operations because it was a combined arms battalion group with infantry, cavalry, engineers, 
and a range of different uh, players that supported that stabilisation mission as, long as, as well as some other security missions along the border of East Timor for about six months. Um, my next experience as a major was to attend the Marine Corps Command and Staff College at Quantico, which was one of those experiences. It was, I wouldn't say a crucible experience, but an experience that really opened my eyes to the contemporary demands of uh, being an intellectual officer and just um, how much and how important it was to focus on my intellect as opposed to my technical skills as an officer. And that two years I had there at Staff College in the School of Ends Warfighting uh, not only pushed me intellectually, uh, but it built a network for me of uh, terrific Marine, uh, US Army, US Air Force and Navy officers uh, that I've continued to uh, associate with uh, through subsequent postings in places like Iraq, Afghanistan uh, and in Washington. Um, as a Lieutenant Colonel, I got selected to command again, this time the 1st Combat Engineer Regiment back in the 1st Brigade in Darwin. Uh, another terrific experience coming off the back of a, a deployment to Iraq uh, just previous to that. Uh, and once again, it was about combined arms, about really pushing the professional development and education of uh, junior leaders, whether they're uh, section leaders or, or platoon leaders. And then as part of that, we got to stand up, as Claire said, the first reconstruction task force. Now, this was uh, not a standing organisation. Uh, um, we basically designed it from the ground up. We uh, wargamed uh, several different organisations. We developed our own standing operating procedures. Uh, we held a tactical seminar when we concentrated all the officers in Darwin to confirm those. Uh, we designed our own training program. Uh, and then after uh, a series of certification activities, we deployed it to Afghanistan. And in those days, southern Afghanistan was, was pretty woolly. There wasn't a significant number of forces there. Security was really undertaken by about a battalion-sized organisation in each province, which is pretty light on. Uh, but it gave me a lot of freedom in how we developed our approach to stabilisation, and it was very much a reconstruction-led about building stuff whilst also having our own capacity to generate security. But we learned very early on that uh, building stuff was not going to be uh, the key to success there. It was really going to be building human beings. And over the eight months of our tour, we, we transitioned our concept of operations from building things to building human capacity. And, and that you know, manifested as the uh, trade training school we set up originally in the back of a tent. Uh, training a engineer squadron uh, with the US Army mentors, uh, bringing them in on all our missions, and then starting to train a range of tradesmen to be able to sustain things that we were actually building in uh, Tarrant and its surroundings. But it also got down to things like uh, uh, people like Claire who would be out on a job site inspection and then mentoring Afghans to do the same thing down the track or mentoring Afghans how to submit contracts. So there is a range of capacity building which wasn't part of my mission. Uh, I wasn't tasked to do, but uh, the people in the task force and, and I saw that it was, we thought, the key to success in 06, 07, and that really become uh, how we saw the mission there. 
so we, we you know, I finished my, that command in 07, uh, did a few staff jobs. Um, I was very fortunate then in the uh, start of 2010 at short notice to head off to the United States at sh- uh, to work in the Pakistan-Afghanistan coordination cell. I did that for 18 months and that was tremendous and then got picked up to go to Johns Hopkins University, which was my war college. Uh, came back to Australia, uh, did another short staff job in, in Canberra and then uh, had the great privilege to uh, command the 1st Brigade, which I've only just completed. There's kind of been this theme building with these podcasts of soldier scholars, particularly in the United States. I think in Australia that we're trying to get that mentality of being a soldier scholar in the intellectual development. With that in mind, my next question is the very unfair question where I almost ask you to be Notre Dameus and predict what you think the future operating environment looks like. Well, you know, I think there's enough uh, in the trends that we're seeing now in, in places uh, such as the Western Pacific or the Middle East or Ukraine and, and other locations. I think there's some themes that will continue into the future. Um, you know, we will see uh, a greater proliferation of the little green men uh, that we've seen in Crimea and, uh, you know, you can call it hybrid warfare or, or grey zone or whatever you want to call it, but we'll see a lot more of uh, nation states providing non-conventional capability to support um, them gaining their national um, objectives. Cyber is a, is a no-brainer. I mean, uh, it's an interconnected world um, and in the digital age, it's just something you can't avoid. And, and you know, when I see senior people trying to avoid being on social media and these kind of things, I, I try to encourage them to, to get into it because it's just where our people are at the moment. Um, you know, I think uh, precision still has some way to go, but, you know, precision weapons, precision ISR and those kind of things have profoundly changed warfare and will continue to profoundly change warfare. And we'll see um, the threshold for precision weapons and the price of it continue to drop, I think, and, and that'll be a another hallmark of future warfare. But I think this is all underpinned by the things in warfare that don't change. And at its heart, uh, warfare will continue to be a human endeavour. Um, I don't see anything that will change the essential nature of warfare, which is about human beings seeking to impose their will on others. And those who believe that uh, wars will be won through entirely technical means, whether it's cyber, whether it's bombing, or any other purely technical means, uh, one, demonstrate a lack of understanding of history. Uh, They demonstrate a lack of understanding of human beings. And I think uh, don't understand what conflict and warfare is about. Wars have always been fought and will continue, I think, to characterise our future in this very human endeavour. And the humans that we've got at the heart of the face-to-face uh, with the adversary and also the population in this future war is our junior commanders. What role do you see for our junior commanders in this future that you've just described? Well, you know, over the last 20 or 30 years, we've tracked um, how the density of the battle space has changed. And I remember seeing a great presentation by General Scales at one point about, you know, the ground that used to be covered by a division is now covered by a company or a battalion. And the more profound observation is not so much about the size of the unit covering ground, but the responsibilities of leaders. Um, So, 
you know, back in the day, a division commander might have had a certain responsibility. The kind of breadth of responsibility he once had is now owned by captains and junior leaders. So our, our junior leaders, all through the selection, uh, recruitment, training and education of them, uh, need to be prepared for an environment that is going to constantly change. They need to be prepared for an environment uh, that, you know, they'll be prepared for one kind of mission and it'll change as soon as they get there or it'll, or it'll change throughout the conduct of their mission. And, you know, these are the kind of challenges for an institution to prepare young people for. Um, and whether they're young NCOs or, or young officers, uh, the challenges are the same. And whilst the technical proficiency in their trade will always be very important, it will be the intellectual proficiency um, and their intellectual breadth which will provide them with the capacity to respond to change um, and to, more importantly, respond to shock uh, because we're always going to be surprised. Uh, surprise is an enduring element of warfare. Um, we are terrible at predicting what the next war is going to be. Uh, we have always been surprised on operations, so we need to assume that that is still going to happen, but prepare our people so that when it does happen, uh, they are uh, more able at getting over the shock that is generated through that surprise and then adapt. And it may not be a physical shock, it could well be a uh, public affairs shock or, uh, or some kind of intellectual shock, but our people need to be prepared to get over that shock quickly, adapt, and then respond more quickly than the enemy does. And every commander in our Australian Army has this finite resource called time. So with the technological, uh, intellectual and physical development that junior commanders need to do to prepare for shock and surprise in this future environment, with their finite resource of time, where would you best direct for a junior commander for them to start looking at skills training? Well, I think, you know, for, first and foremost, the institution needs to um, improve its capacity to provide resources for our junior leaders through our professional military education program and, and the resources that are available through that. Uh, but at the end of the day, 80% of our professional education development is going to be the stuff that we generate ourselves, us driving our own professional education and development. Uh, we can't afford an officer call that is uh, built on just receiving professional education interventions and opportunities. It needs to be one that is constantly out there seeking opportunities to learn, to be able to engage with other people, uh, to be seeking opportunities to develop their intellect, broaden their experiential base. So, you know, the institution needs to provide resources, but at the end of the day, we need to build offices that have a committed learning culture from, from day one. And, you know, we need to uh, ensure that's part of our officer training and education, but we need to ensure that it's incentivised and that uh, the resources are provided for uh, our officers and indeed our NCOs and soldiers to be able to seek out and exploit resources to to nurture their professional education development. Absolutely, and I think that committed learning culture first starts with junior commanders feel empowered to start their own journey. If it's not something that is forced upon them, that it's a bit like physical training where if you're not doing PT at a unit level, which you should be obviously, yep. but if you're not, then you go out and do it yourself. And I think that's the same and that will then give our defence force that hallmarks of that soldier scholar that I think a lot of people are aiming to be. 
to finish up the conversation, do you have a good worry to share with us, sir? Embarrassing, informative or otherwise? Um, well, I guess I kind of bared myself a little bit by my first year in service where I, I was a total failure. But um, I'll tell a story. When I was a young lieutenant, I had deployed uh, my troop uh, on a civil community assistant mission, assistance mission. Um, it was out into the west of New South Wales. And uh, we're providing assistance to a community uh, that had been affected by uh, an incident. And one evening, uh, or one day, we had a media crew turn up from a, a national news organisation to do a story on us. And they were terrific. They were doing lots of good stories with the soldiers and interviews. Uh, but while they were there, one of my soldiers one evening um, had a few drinks and, and did something silly. And one of the media people come and ask me about it, and I just said, you know, I'd really prefer not to talk about this. And he said, listen, I'm not interested in doing a story on it. I just want to make sure he's okay. And it was a big lesson to me uh, that, uh, contrary to what we're sometimes taught, um, our engagement with people in the media doesn't have to be all negative. It can be positive. There are very good people there um, who are trying to do the right thing, who also live by a strong code of ethics. And it's just said to me that, you know, the media are people that we should understand, uh, that we can work with, and aren't always out there looking for bad things about us. So, you know, that, that was a really profound lesson for me, um, because, you know, many militaries have an institutional uh, distrust of dealing with um, some media organisations, and you know, I, I don't have that. I, I think uh, we need to be informed and we need to be cautious at times, but no reason we shouldn't be able to inform and, and learn from each other. And I think that's a great way to answer War's Human Endeavour at People to People uh, stage, which is where our junior commanders sit at, is exactly what they should be training for. So thanks very much for having this chat this afternoon. I've taken up too much of your time as always, but you're always very generous in giving it to commanders at all levels. So I thank you once again. Thanks, Claire. It's great to talk to you. Thanks.